Chapter Sixteen of East by West by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Chapter Sixteen: Across Country in Gin Rickishes. The ball at the Foreign Office was over at half past one, and four hours later I was awakened by the chamberman at the hotel announcing Bath Leddy. Had I been able to consult my private inclination, I would have let the bath remain ready for an indefinite period and continued my sleep. But we were on a pleasure trip, and in order thoroughly to enjoy yourself, private inclination must frequently be sacrificed. We were bound for Nico taking the first stage of the journey by train, and the station was about as far off as it could possibly get and still be in Tokyo. We were in the jinrikishas by a quarter past six, and the train started at seven, but Ito, our guide, was already fearful that we should miss the train. Two men were harnessed to each jinrikisha, and away we went at incredible speed, through waking, yawning Tokyo. A jinrikisha man thoroughly enjoys himself when he is running in couples with a train of jinrikishas. The spirit of competition sends him bounding along at racing speed, which he will keep up for miles. The way he turns a corner is enough to whiten the hair in a day's journey. I heap! he shouts, and dashes round, with the jinrikisha swaying over on one wheel. Before we had gone half a mile, I felt thoroughly convinced that the jinrikishas would be in time to catch the train, but where I should be depended upon the particular corner at which the rickety little carriage gave an extra lurk. It seems cruel work for the men who frequently run along bareheaded with the perspiration dropping off their face like rain, but both they and their fares get used to it in time, and certainly the men make no complaint. Count Zaluski, the Austrian minister, who has just arrived and sees Japan for the first time, tells me he has already learned one Japanese word which, being translated, means, Go slower. This he constantly addresses to his jinrikisha men when they break into anything beyond a trot. But whether owing to imperfect accent or to willful disregard of the kindly meant injunction, he finds that nothing comes of it. I heap! Our men dashed on round corners and through narrow alleys, startling women, frightening children, and only by utmost dexterity avoiding collisions. There seemed no end to Tokyo, but it came at last, and we found ourselves at the station, with fully ten minutes to spare. The train was very full, and though we had paid for first-class tickets, we were glad to find seats in a second-class carriage. This line, which goes in a northwesterly direction from Tokyo, is only partly open, 
but the people of the locality lose no time in availing themselves of it. We went as far as Kumagai, passing through a pretty country, cultivated with loving hand. Here we saw what became familiar enough in subsequent journeying in the interior, the newly harvested rice hung up to dry round the trunks of trees, where on moonlight nights it stands out in the landscape like great ghosts. At Kumagai, the jinrikisha man appeared in his true colours, which are almost entirely flesh-like. It is a little startling to the foreigner landing at Yokohama to discover a race of half-clad men, but the Yokohama coolie is overdressed as compared with his brethren in the interior. If, when he is running, the country coolie, in addition to a loincloth of narrowest limits, wears a blouse coming down to his waist, he has sacrificed much on the altar of decency. It is quite as common to meet one with nothing on but a pair of sandals and a pocket-handkerchief girt about his loins. On entering the tea-house at Kumagai, to wait whilst Ito arranged matters with the coolies, the women, kneeling on the floor and bending their heads till they touched the ground, murmured words of welcome. One brought us tea in tiny cups, from which we drank without finding refreshment. Japanese tea is a weak and almost tasteless beverage of a pale yellow colour, served without sugar or milk. Its chief recommendation is that it is brought in small quantities, and if courtesy compels one to drink it, the infliction is not serious. Always remembering that we were on a pleasure trip, Having drunk the tea, we ordered sake. This liquid, upon the manufacture of which much good rice is wasted, was stored in a clean-looking little tub in the part of the house that would be the kitchen when the panels were up. Drawing out the spigot, the landlady filled two small blue and white jars, such as are used in England for holding a single flower. These she deposited for a few minutes in hot water, serving the sake lukewarm. It tasted as if it had been procured by washing out a decanter that had held sherry, and leaving the liquid to acquire a fine, stale flavour. With the sake was brought a little pot of pickles, chiefly consisting, as far as I was able to identify the ingredients, of sour turnip and sodden celery. The very smell of this dish, which the soul of Japanese loveth, is enough to make a European ill. I first detected it at a house in Yokohama, and thought the drains were out of order. At a dainty and costly Japanese dinner, at which a week later I was privileged to sit, a plate of these pickles vilely smelling, was served to each guest, and I noticed the Japanese ladies and gentlemen ate it with gusto. Kumagai is a busy little place, doing a big business in cotton and the eggs of silkworms. 
an industry that is even more in evidence is that of basket-making these woven of bamboo are of all shapes and sizes are wonderfully cheap and are the prettiest things imaginable as in all other japanese villages we visited everybody in kumagai was hard at work there was it is true a temporary cessation of labour on the part of a body of men women and children who followed us round dumbly staring but generally the people went on with their work evidently pleased with the attention it attracted from the foreigners all the implements in use were of the most primitive description a gang of fourteen men were driving piles preparatory to building a structure of heavier cast than the average japanese house standing on a scaffold the fourteen men hoisted the ram a few feet and letting go their hold it fell with whatever impetus was to be derived from the height it dropped in precisely the same way we saw a gang of men driving piles for a bridge some fifty miles inland a common object in japanese towns and villages is the rice pounder a man or sometimes a woman steps on the end of a long beam at the other end of which a stout piece of wood is fixed at right angles the weight of the man raises this beam and when he steps off it falls into the scoop filled with rice by which treadmill work an appreciable portion is pounded the same primitive kind of tools are in use through all the earlier processes of rice growing the rice harvest was in full swing as we drove along and sunday though it was there was no cessation of labour whether in field or homestead in a journey of nearly two hundred and fifty miles through this portion of the interior i did not see a single plough in the course of a subsequent journey through the southern portion of the island i saw two miserable little things which a man could easily lift drawn by an undersized ox in almost universal use is the earliest idea of a plough it is a spade with a narrow blade about three feet long the farmer thrusts this well into the soil and turning it over on one side makes a furrow the action and the result being identical with that of a plough only watching the laborious process one thinks of the enormous strides agriculture will take in japan when these rude instruments are cast aside and the plough is put to work when the rice is cut and dried it is stripped by the simple process of drawing the heads through a small iron comb which does a handful at a time it is threshed by a flail precisely of the same make as that in use in the threshing floor of nakon what time uzza put forth his hand to steady the ark of god that david was bringing up from kiriath jearim when the rice is stripped it is laid out to dry on mats spread in the sun in passing through a village these mats covered with rice are frequently to be seen flanking the full length of the road on both sides japan has many arts porcelain and earthenware are manufactured in every province 
its enamelers on copper have no rivals in the world. It has workers in bronze, carvers of ivory, and is the home of lacquer work. But it is essentially an agricultural country, living by the fruit of its land. According to the last census taken in 1880, the total population was 36 millions, and of these, nearly 16 millions were farmers in almost equal proportion of sexes. Under the present order of things dating from the revolution of 1868, the people own the land, paying tax for it to the government. About three-tenths of the tilled land of Japan is in the hand of small proprietors, who, with their wives and children, do all the farm work. Of the balance, though held in larger sections, there is nothing akin to the large farms of England. In addition to the population returned as farmers, there is a considerable proportion of farm labourers. An able-bodied farmhand receives wages at about the rate of tenpence a day, with board. As he is almost a vegetarian, his food does not cost much, consisting chiefly of rice, barley, peas, beans and turnips, with occasional relishes in the shape of eggs or salt fish. Rice is the principal product of the empire, being grown in all its provinces. Tea, silk and cotton come next, and in addition there are grown tobacco, wheat, barley, millet, peas and beans. Of late years much attention has been given to the culture of grapes, and the Japanese are not without hope that within the next ten years they may introduce and popularise in Europe a new vintage. In a barber's shop at Kumagai, we saw a man at work in a pink costume of unusual fullness. This was a convict out for the day. It is the custom of Japan to permit convicts, under certain conditions, to go out and ply their trades, the money received being credited to them when the term of their imprisonment is complete. At Tokyo we saw a gang working as excavators. These, labouring in a populous town, were lightly chained to each other to prevent any mistakes. At Kumagai, being a small place, and opportunities for escape being limited, the convict barber was at large, being simply under bond to return to prison when he had shaved his customers. We took a short cut out of Kumagai, passing through fields and long hamlets rarely visited by the foreigner. It was terribly rough, though full of interest at every step. Our coolies were in high spirits at the prospect of extra pay and an engagement to last for a week. They rushed along through holes and over boulders, shouting warnings to each other as they came to a fresh obstacle. At noon we came to a broad river, which we crossed, jinrikisha and all, in a ferry-boat. There was a strong current running down, but the boatman, using a single pole, skilfully punted us across. There was a good deal of traffic, junks, 
sailing down to Tokyo with country produce. They had curious sails made in slips, sometimes laced together, but not unfrequently flying loose like so many ribbons. This kind of sail is in use on all the inland seas of Japan. By its means, the force of the wind is regulated. When a Japanese sailor wants to take in a reef, he unlaces one or more of these strips, and the amount of sail is reduced accordingly. We stopped for tiffin on the other side of the river, and had our first taste of Ito's cookery. He is the guide who served his apprenticeship with Miss Bird, and proved a perfect treasure. In height he is fully five feet, and according to English reckoning is twenty-one years old, though habits of reflection and constant searching after fresh knowledge made him look forty. In mentioning his age, with the proviso that it was according to English way of reckoning, he explained that according to Japanese custom, age is counted from the first day of January succeeding birth. At that date a child is one year old, whether born the previous January, at midsummer, or on the 31st of December. Ito made an excellent omelette, which with a dish of cold tongue and a cup of cocoa completed a luxurious luncheon. After an hour's rest, we were off again, and presently reached the Rehei Shikaido, the road which used to be followed by the envoy of the Mikado in his annual pilgrimage to the tomb of the first shogun at Nikko. This road, one of the great highways of Japan, is in a condition almost as bad as the road leading citywards from the steamboat wharf at New York. I understand that improvement will shortly take place in this respect. Mr. Ito, the Minister of State, recently made a journey over the road, and received a strong impression that the Prefect might find more useful opening for his energy elsewhere. He was accordingly removed, a new Prefect appointed, and already the long-delayed work of road-mending has commenced. As it was, we were frequently compelled to make detours in the woods and fields that flank the highway. In one of these, seamed with the roots of ancient trees, a young gentleman from Glasgow, companion of our voyage, was pitched out. He took great credit to himself and to his gymnastic training that, whereas the jinrikisha fell on the left side, he tumbled out on the right but it is easy enough, as I presently did it myself, and Ito, whom long practice has enabled to bring to high perfection the art of sleeping in a jinrikisha, was frequently picked up by the wayside. This road is for many miles a magnificent avenue of cryptomeria. Tall, solemn trees flank the road on either side, often interlacing at the top. The avenue was planted in a bygone age by a daimyo who desired to do honour to the shogun. The tombs of the shoguns, both at Shiba and Niko, are surrounded by costly presents from the old nobility, who thereby performed a pious act, and at the same time 
ingratiated themselves with the ruling powers. This offering of a few thousand puny cuttings planted by the roadside was sneered at at the time as a cheap and inadequate way of performing a duty. Now there is nothing either in stone or metal that equals this magnificent avenue raised to the glory of the shoguns. We spent the night at Tochigi, having done thirty-five miles in the jinrikisha. At the thirty-second mile the leader of my tandem team stopped to tie his straw sandal. The wheeler, with a merry laugh, bowled on ahead, and having got a few minutes' start, kept it up till the other coolie overtook him and took his share in the pulling again. When we reached the tea-house, the coolies washed their feet, covered their semi-nakedness with their cotton blouses, and sat down contented and happy to their evening meal. This consisted of two soups, which always introduce a Japanese dinner, a bowl of rice, some eggs, and a dubious vegetable. A meal not too heavy after the day's work, and with the prospect of one on the morrow equally exhausting. For liquid refreshment they had a cup or two of tasteless tea, the banquet being rounded off by three whiffs from their Lilliputian pipes. As for us, all preconceived notions of personal discomfort and even semi-starvation when travelling in the interior were agreeably dispelled. We had two rooms on an upper floor, spotlessly clean the straw matting shining with polish, and the walls partially formed of painted screens. There were a table and three chairs, which looked grotesquely out of place, but were nevertheless acceptable. The tea-house provided a small oil-lamp, and one of those large circular white paper lanterns, which, with the expenditure of a little oil burned through two wicks like wax matches, diffuse a surprising quantity of soft light. We had brought candles, and two of these stuck in bottles completed an illumination that left nothing to be desired. For dinner we had mulligatawny soup, roast mutton and curry with rice, soup and meat out of tins, it is true, but skilfully rendered by Ito. This is a fair specimen of our meals throughout the trip, whence it will appear that, with a little forethought and a good guide, travel has no unusual discomfort in Japan. I went over before dinner to see the public baths. They consisted of a room about twenty feet long and eighteen broad. At the further end were two tanks of hot water steaming. In one, three men were sitting up to their necks, placidly enjoying the refreshment. In the other were as many women. It cannot be said with literal exactness that men and women bathe together, but the partition is not jealously fixed. In all tea-houses there is a bath varying in size and convenience with the importance of the house. At Tochigi the bath was a recess about twelve feet square. As we passed it on the way to our room, Two young men, stark naked, were drying themselves after their bath. 
I do not like positively to make so grave an assertion without proof, but I have strong reason to believe that later, just before going to bed, the servants of the tea-house, male and female, took their bath in company. Our bed was made up on the floor. The process of bed-making consists of laying down two or three wadded quilts. Then come our own sheets, brought from Yokohama, and one or more quilts completed the operation. The Japanese do not use a pillow in our sense of the word. They have a small piece of wood, something like a clog in shape, and not exceeding it in size. On this they lay their heads. The girls and women, serene in the consciousness that their hair will not be disarranged. The wonderful structure of a Japanese headdress is usually made up once in four days. It is evident that if it were tousled on a down pillow, it would have to be dealt with every day. Not weighted with the responsibility of such a coiffure, we were glad to have for pillow one of the quilts rolled up, and slept as comfortably as in the best bed in Europe. Amongst the many evils predicted in advance of the excursion was the incessant attack of fleas, which are reported to abound in Japan. Probably owing to the colder weather, and in something due to the strategic use of insect powder, we were throughout all this tour, and on a subsequent one in the south, entirely free from this pest. We had, for personal attendance in the tea-house, two young daughters of the proprietor, as merry as crickets, and regarding the advent of strangers as a huge joke, which it behoved them thoroughly to enjoy. They had very pretty ways, kneeling on the threshold of the room as they entered, kneeling again when they withdrew, and always presenting food in this attitude of graceful humility. They chattered all through the meal, regardless of our ignorance of their language. The lady of the party was a subject of never-fading interest. As usual, it was the arrangement of the back hair that chiefly attracted them. I got a cold bath in the morning under somewhat perilous circumstances, seeing that there was no door to the bathroom, and that the passage was the common one of the house but no one else seemed to mind particularly. Other guests and members of the household freely entered to perform their morning ablutions. There was in one part of the room a small wooden bowl of salt. To this everyone came, took out a few pinches, and washed his mouth. Apart from the bathrooms, the arrangements for a morning wash were very simple. An open gallery runs round the sleeping rooms. Here are placed a tub of water. You bring your own soap and towels, if regarding them indispensable, and under the high heavens and before the gaping village, you wash. We started in good time next morning in splendid weather, and with our coolies as fresh as if nothing particular had happened on the previous day. About half the town assembled to see us off, providing a favourable opportunity of studying the various fashions in which the children's hair is arranged. 
in some cases the head is closely shaved but more often the hair is fantastically cultivated a favourite style is to shave the head all round the crown leaving that covered with hair shaped like a skull-cap sometimes all is shaved save a few locks over the forehead another rather fetching design is to leave a couple of well-defined locks over either ear just enough to hold the child up by if that were deemed a desirable disciplinary process the children are disgustingly dirty the evening bath which forms a daily habit with their parents apparently never being open for them our drive to-day was through a country beautiful beyond description the mountain range of nikko a grey shadow on the horizon when we left kumagai was now almost within reach we neared it passing always through this solemn avenue of cryptomeria with people busy in the fields on either side gathering in the bountiful rice harvest very few horses were met with and these were chiefly engaged in drawing loads of bamboo bundles of the thick end of the cane are laid upon either side of the pack saddle the thin ends trailing on the ground far in the rear like the coolies the horses are shod with straw sandals of these the consumption must be enormous since they do not last more than a day or at best two days when new they cost a penny a pair and all the high roads of japan are strewn with castaways we met scores of men dragging incredible burdens in long handcarts they harnessed themselves to a rope tied to the axle the cart is tilted back and with the rope on shoulder and body bent forward they go along uphill or on level roadway the women take their share in this work as in all others as we descended a hill we met one with a baby at her back and a rope across her chest manfully tugging at a cart with her husband in the shafts nikko struggles for over a mile up the hill at the top of which is the tomb of the first and the third mightiest among the shoguns the tea-house where we stopped is at the top of the village it was of better style than any we had sojourned in and it was charged for accordingly the natural consequence of the more widely known attractions of japan is discovered in the gradual rise in prices so recently as two years back seventy-five sen equal to about three shillings was the usual price for a day's sojourn in the japanese tea-house and for this the foreigner was entitled to board for the same accommodation though less ample in respect of sleeping accommodation the japanese pay even now eighteen pence a head our party was charged at the rate of five shillings a head at nikko which seeing that we took nothing in the way of board except a little rice and a few eggs was not cheap as compared with the twelve shillings a day wine included which we paid at the grand hotel at yokohama still the rooms were very pretty and scrupulously clean we had a suite of three making the centre one our dining-room from the balcony outside there was a splendid view of the hills of nikko 
the larger pretensions of the house were shown amongst other things in the bathroom which stood by itself in a range of buildings flanking the courtyard this little house came near to being the scene of a tragedy which is recorded here as a warning to travellers coming back from an excursion to the chin zenji the lady of our party went to take a bath a quarter of an hour later she was discovered partly dressed lying insensible across the threshold of the bathhouse these baths are heated with charcoal and in the great majority which are built in the passages of the houses there is always sufficient ventilation to carry away the poisonous fumes at nikko the bath having the rare accommodation of a door the fumes are retained within the chamber the lady having taken her bath was dressing when she was suddenly overpowered she had just strength to struggle towards the door against which she fell fortunately the door opened outwards and she got her head in the passage had the door opened from the inside there could have been only one result from an accident which in all probability would not have been discovered for half an hour we had bought a pheasant on the road paying as much as one and eightpence for it dear ito admitted but the season had only just commenced it was small but full of flavour and proved a great addition to our funeral tinned meats at daybreak i was awakened by an unmistakable british voice crying aloud for a towel looking out at the courtyard i saw a gentleman whom we had passed on the road standing barefooted and dripping wet by a bucket of water in which he had been washing he had only at this critical moment discovered that the japanese do not regard the towel as an absolutely necessary appanage to a toilet set towel roared the wet and angry briton to the trembling japanese who stood there ready and willing to go anywhere and do anything if he only knew what hate the japanese said aimlessly hovering about towel towel the britisher roared trying all possible forms of accentuation in the hope that one might strike a chord of intelligence in the mind of this ineffably stupid man the japanese evidently began to think that whatever might be wanted it would be safer for him to go and look for it inside and not to be in a hurry coming back towel the englishman roared again Hate! said the japanese and ran nimbly into the house but he did not come back again and the englishman after stamping around disappeared in his own room partially dried in the wind i learnt from him later that he had had a good deal of trouble from this unpardonable and unaccountable ignorance of the english language among japanese in the interior he had walked for fifty miles through glorious scenery heading for nikko the only word he could pronounce in the japanese tongue was nikko and by dint of repeating this he got along moderately well 
his main difficulty was in the matter of food he lived chiefly on rice and tea and had arrived at the tea-house on the previous night half famished i fancy that in the best of circumstances he was naturally of an irascible temperament but after living on rice and tea for two days to reach nico and find no towel after he had trustfully washed himself was he admitted more than he could bear without protest End of chapter 16